Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to Peggy's Recovery Corner. We are back today and I uh, have a very special guest. Uh, his name is David Vanderveld. I just want to make sure I'm pronouncing your last name correctly. Uh, right? Okay, good. And uh, he is the founder of Awakening, correct? Am I right? Am I saying it right? Co-founder, yeah. Co-founder, okay. And we'll get into all that. Uh, Awakening is a, a structured, sober living nonprofit that's based out of Los Angeles. But first and foremost, I'd, I want to learn about David, you yourself. Um, who are you? Where were you born? Where were you raised? We can get all, into all the nitty gritty, all the other stuff afterwards, and then we'll work our way up to the recovery process. So who are you, David? All right. I was uh, born and raised in Los Angeles. Um, I initially was brought up in Brentwood and then moved to the Valley briefly because of uh, busing mm -hmm. uh, and then ended up moving back to Santa Monica where I graduated Samo High, Santa Monica High School in 86. Mm -hmm. And so, and then a series of things happened, uh, went up to college in Northern California and uh, so apparently Siri wants to get involved in this podcast. <laughs> Probably heard you uh, say something that sounded like Siri. I apparently. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so I went off to college in Northern California and then uh, drove cross country to New York and ended up getting sober in New York, although I was introduced to AA sorry, 12, 12 step program. Uh, in, I mean, you can uh, say whatever you Los want. Angeles. That's on you. Yes. <laughs> Try to stay with the traditions as much as possible. Right. So yeah, I, it's hard to talk about my upbringing without talking about my addiction and alcoholism. I got sober when I was 19. So it played a big part in my early life and also the last 33 years of being in 12 step absence based recovery myself. Mm -hmm. uh, so I grew up on, in Los Angeles and uh, my parents got divorced when I was about five, five and a half. Um, it was a challenging home life in those first five years because my parents were married for 16 years and I got the last six years of that. Um, and it wasn't a pleasant experience for them, I think, the last six years. And it certainly wasn't for me either. Mm -hmm. um, and then after that, it was in the middle of the um, the busing situation. So I ended up going through the busing situation and my mom wanting to move me around to places where I could have the best public school experience possible. Uh, I ended up going to six different elementary schools, um, which was a little bit traumatic just because you never, you don't establish any relationships. And I was an only child and I was adopted. So uh, I think all those things contributed to issues that I had later in life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but none of that made me an alcoholic, you know, or a drug addict. It was just stuff that happened. Sure. And, you know, I probably started drinking and using when I was about 12. That's, um, that's, I experimented with other things. That's like the typical <laughs> age that a common age that a lot of people start, like really getting into. Yeah. Stuff. As soon as I realized the effect that it had, I mm -hmm. wanted to do it pretty much every day, all day. It's, it's interesting. I hear people talk about, you know, social drinking or social drug use. Right. I mean, for me, cause I started so early, there really was never that it was always me wanting to be completely unconscious blasted and not present. 
(laughs) always. And I took whatever I could to make that happen. It was primarily alcohol and uh, whatever pills I could find initially. And then it graduated into uh, crack cocaine and vodka, which is, are the two things that took me down eventually. So crack cocaine. I mean, you know, typically like we start with alcohol and sure some weed or something like that, but crack, like you come from a pretty good family. Like, were you in an area where, uh, crack was running rampant or did somebody turn you on to crack? Like how'd that happen? Interestingly, a friend of mine, Frank, um, we went to his sister's apartment and I was at, uh, Samuel high at the time mm-hmm. and she was doing crack and, right. uh, and it, looked interesting. I mean, before that I had, you know, I snorted cocaine. I had done, drank a lot of alcohol and pot, had smoked pot and taken a lot of pills, but you know, crack cocaine was new to me, but it was the eighties. It was like, you know, 84, 85, 86. So crack was pretty out there at the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Sort of in the same way that, you know, opiates are and, and meth now. And so it's, and the minute I took that hit off that crack pipe, like, I knew I was going to do that as often as possible for the rest yeah. of my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the shit, and, the uh, shit captivates then, you. It really captivates you. Like once you get that hit and that flavor and that feeling that it gives you, it's just not enough. Like you got to keep getting more and more and more of it. I mean, I don't think I was ever able to recapture that first experience <laughs> the rest right. of the time I did, but I certainly tried and, you know, yeah. stole and cheated and did everything I could to, as a teenager to sure. uh, be able to continue to support my habit. And how old were uh, you when that happened? Do you think about like 15, 16 years old? The crack being introduced was probably 16. Mm-hmm. Yeah. About 16. But you said that you had done, 17. you said you'd done cocaine before that. Like, was it commonly used in your, like in your friend circle, people were just doing Coke. Cause like a lot of 16 year olds don't really know about Coke. Or crack. I mean, I did crack at 16 myself, too, and coke. But I, there was somebody that I knew whose, whose family member was into that. So we had gotten it like that. How were you doing coke already so young? I mean, I was going to parties in Santa Monica and Malibu. And, you know, they there was all kinds of things there. Sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and right. so there was alcohol. There was pot. There was cocaine. I mean, mm-hmm. there was pills. There was pretty much anything you wanted you could get in in the weekend, you know, social scene in on the West side in the eighties. And, uh, so yeah, that's pretty much how it started, but I always did all of those things alcoholically. I would say there was, there was Mm -hmm. never, there was no invisible line for me that I crossed. Like the first time for me was crossing the invisible line. I was 12. Mm -hmm. I went to my mom's friend's uh, wedding at what was then the sunset marquee. And mm-hmm. I started out in that room and then went from room to room to room, this little 12 year old tuxedo. And I just kept drinking. And then I like, you know, blacked out ended up throwing up in my bedroom and, you know, couldn't wait to do it again the next time. So it, from the very get go, it was, it was alcoholic, you know, drinking and, uh, and mm-hmm. eventually using. Right. So what about hallucinogens? Did you experiment with any of that in your adolescent period? So when I went off to college, which is in Northern California, you know, pot was very prevalent and so were mushrooms and, mm-hmm. uh, acid. And so I did acid once 
it was, uh, and I did ecstasy up there as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I did all that. It, I wasn't really a hallucinogen person. I really wanted to be up or down. And right. so for me, I either, I did stuff to get me up and then I did stuff to bring me down. But the idea of being completely out of control in the way that hallucinogens did, mm-hmm. that made me uncomfortable because I was very controlling. Okay. Um, so you said you went up to college. Did you complete college or did the drugs and alcohol get in the way of things? <laughs> the latter. I mean, I, there's no way I mean, I could, you know, what I did and how I thought and how I acted college was not a great environment for me. And, uh, when I was up in college, I ended up, uh, borrowing a friend's half ton truck and, uh, getting in a five car accident where I didn't quite make it out onto, the main road, thank God, but I did. What, what, um, what were you on? Were you drinking? I believe I was just drinking. And they, I was so drunk that they wanted to leave me on campus. And they all went off to this bar. And I didn't like that they left me there. And so I borrowed my friend's truck to <laughs> go meet them. And uh, like I said, I never quite made it off campus. And popped all four tires, cracked the axle, you know, side swipe, backed into cars. It was, it was, there were five cars with a lot of damage by the time. Uh, and then I ran away from the scene and the, you know, the security had to tackle me to the ground and then took me into the police station, which is when, where they UA'd me, which is, which was like two and a half hours later. And I still blew a point two, three. And Holy so, uh, I'm sure I was well over 0.3 when I was driving, which, you know, I could have really hurt somebody. I'm grateful sure. that didn't happen. But that's, that's after, very, drunk. very drunk. Yeah. So after that, I lasted one more semester and decided that probably I wasn't going to be asked to come back the next time. And as a po- and as a consequence of that DUI, I ended up going to uh, some AA meetings um, and it was interesting. I was 17. No, I was 18. I was 18 when that happened and I just turned 19 and it was back in Los Angeles for the summer and had to go to 12 AA meetings. And so as a part of the, uh, DUI thing, and I was like, okay, I'll do 12 in a row and just be done with this so I can enjoy the rest of my summer. And yes. from the first time I went to a 12 step meeting, I have to say, I, I knew immediately that I was an alcoholic. And I think because it was the late eighties, I didn't have a lot of exposure to recovery. It's not all over the place like it is now in terms of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I never really considered the idea that I was an alcoholic. I really just did what I did, thought I was insane, had a lot of blame game stuff going on and no taking no responsibility for what was happening to me. And, and so when I, when I went and got a sponsor and started working the steps, you know, it, it really started to stir things up in me that I had never let come to the surface ever. Cause if I ever had an extreme positive feeling or extreme negative feeling, like I was putting something in me to escape. And so when I got sober that first time, all kinds of stuff started to come to the surface. And, uh, I decided to start acting out in ways that, uh, got me in a lot of trouble. So, <laughs> and that was where I think the darkest part of my drinking and using, happened. I stayed sober for about six months. Um, but in the process of staying sober, I 
I really engaged in some very, very unsober behavior. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of it w was about my sexuality emerging because um, mm -hmm. I'm a gay man. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, you know, didn't know anything about that, didn't understand it, sure. um, ended up getting involved with a IV drug using prostitute porn star person that I thought I was in love with, but we really just had intense use drug addiction in, in common. And uh, I ended up getting involved in prostitution sober. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then finally on New Year's Eve ended up drinking again. And we ended up, you know, drinking and using across country to Washington, D.C. We got in a fight. I ended up flying up to New York City and uh, had a very drug-induced um, crack cocaine and alcohol week um, in, a, in a hotel on uh, 42nd and 9th Avenue, mm -hmm. uh, which was the Milford Plaza Hotel. And back then there wasn't all this Disney, you know, Times Square stuff. It was a seedy, gnarly area. And yes. uh, I was yes. arguing with drug dealers in an alley about the quality of the crack they were trying to sell me. They were laughing oh at me, God. this you know, oh crazy 18 year old white boy, you know, arguing about the quality. Anyway, they ended up giving <laughs> it to me because they were just shocked. They just laughed at me. They're like, we could kill you, but you're just crazy. Yes. And I was. Yeah. Um, not even worth it. And then it. I ended up going to AA, you know, and I was like 145 pounds when I this when is I got in New York. Into, you started going to AA New York. Up there? Yeah. Yep. And I I was in a meeting and with the person that I was with, and uh, you know, I ended up getting sober. They didn't. They ended up dying two and a half years later, and uh, you know, and I ended up staying sober. And you know, I was definitely sicker than most. You know, mm -hmm. I, I. It's interesting now, you know, running awakening recovery because when i got sober in new york in 88 a it was at the the, the very peak of the aids crisis mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and people were dying all the time i went to 17 funerals my first um two and two years I of remember. sobriety and we would take meetings to people in hospital rooms and it was it was mm -hmm. very intense and traumatic in hindsight mm -hmm. um but it also was things where I saw the this the magic of you know people wanting to die sober, you know in in hospital rooms with you know loving people in twelve step programs surrounding them and bringing meetings to them and it was it was really a it affected my recovery in a very profound way. I love that. Um, and I you know I was insane, so I was going to like two to four meetings a day you know, the hardest thing about staying sober was staying sober in between the meetings, you know, mm -hmm. so I would do fellowship all the time, but yeah. I would, I couldn't get to sleep before two or three in the morning because of my drug use and my alcoholism. And then I would get up around 10, I would go to a noon meeting, then I would go to six o'clock meeting, 10 o'clock meeting, and then midnight madness in, in Times Square at the time. Mm -hmm. And that was my routine most days. Uh, mm -hmm. And I ended up moving in with my sponsor at about 90 days because my dad, who was living in New York at the time, was kind of done with me. Mm -hmm. uh, I was a lot <laughs> to deal with. And, uh, and, and that was really the beginning of my, my sobriety. So I had a very structured thing because like my sponsor was like, what meeting did you go to? What numbers did you get? Did you call them? Who spoke? Did you share? What did they say? Like pretty much every day. 
And wow. so I was accountable on a daily basis to all of that. And thank God, cause I don't think I would have stayed sober otherwise. Mm-hmm. And because I lived with, with him, you know, he was like, you know, did you make your bed? Did you clean your room? Did you brush your teeth? You know, uh, you know, your parents can only give you, you know, X amount of dollars a week, you know, and he would talk to my family and tell them what they should and shouldn't do because they were being codependent and they should go to Al-Anon and blah, 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 blah. So like, it was, it was a one man recovery home that was very intense and uh, very structured the entire time. I, he had a house um, out on the coast of New York and, I remember one time, you know, him wanting me to clean that house in which included a triple zero um, Brillo pad and paper towels at Windex for about eight hours. And mm-hmm. honestly, that really had a profound impact on me because I, I really understood the sort of the value of esteemable acts, because when mm-hmm. I got sober, I had no self-esteem. You know, sure. I mean, I, that was like a four. I didn't even understand the word, honestly. Right. I was I was a chameleon. I was whoever you wanted, whoever I thought you wanted me to be, which was often mm-hmm. wrong. Right. And it uh, and so the integrity and the accountability and the personal responsibility that both the 12 step process and the very structured sort of behavioral process that my sponsor instilled in me really set the tone for my recovery. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and back then in New York, you know, in between each of those meetings I would go to on a daily basis, somebody was always asking if you wanted to go to coffee or you wanted to go have dinner. And if you didn't have money, they would pay for you. And, you know, and and do you have a place to stay tonight? You know, like it was, that was a regular occurrence. People looked out Um, for each other. They they still do. But yeah, I think back then it was really very, very much happening. It's a lot less now. Um, Right. And, and look, I think there wasn't really the treatment industry as a prevalent uh, source. And at that right. time, there was Betty Ford, there was Hazleton, there was a few other places around, but it wasn't a cultural norm in the recovery mm-hmm. community that people were going to rehab or having outside support communities to, to rely upon to help you stay sober. And uh, for me, I definitely would not have stayed sober if I didn't have all of those things. In hindsight, I didn't, I, right. I didn't realize what grace it was to have that gift of desperation and willingness to say no to things, to say yes to things that I had always said no to always. I mean, you would tell me, and I was a horrible liar. Like if you said, Oh, what color is the sky? And you wanted me to say blue, I would say it was green. Just, just (laughs) lies would just roll off my tongue because I, I had no value. I had no morals. It was, I was kind of like this animal coming into 12 step programs, you know, and, and the 12 step programs really raised me, you know, I think because I got sober when I was 19 and I've other than this dark period between five and 10 years sober, where I wasn't very active um, and almost relapsed at 10 years sober. I think I've always been pretty active in 12 step community and Mm -hmm. it has changed me to my core. I mean, I, I can't really explain how profoundly it's changed me to the core of my heart and my soul. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I turned 20 years sober and 40 years old, about 13 years ago, I had had this great career because of the 12 step program and learning the things I learned from my sponsor, mm-hmm. you know, show up and do what's in front of you. 
I was a really good employee and I was able to have a great career, you know, producing corporate events for the entertainment industry and sports. And, and I loved it, but ultimately I think, you know, the 12 step process and the 12 step community kind of ruined my ability to have a, (laughs) you know, quote unquote, normal life, you know, that was just about making money and having a successful career, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so when I turned 40 years old and 20 years sober, I was like, I need something more. I I can't, I can't just do this career thing that I'm doing. I need to make recovery more part of my life, but I had no idea what that was going to be. Sure. And, you know, and, and just like when I, when I got sober and got my first career job that got me into corporate events, it was volunteering at APLA. Um, and the only place they had a volunteer position available was in the development department, fundraising and events. And that's how my 25 year career started. So really everything that I have and have developed in my adult life has been as a result of recovery and having a service oriented, uh, outlook on life. Mm -hmm. And so probably about five years after that, when I turned like 25 years sober and about 45 years old, I had, I took on this sponsee who I was landing at LAX uh, from a trip to New York and another sponsee called and said, you need to, um, call this guy he's in the hospital and he you know stole a cop car and crashed it into a starbucks and uh lost both his legs and he's in uh cedars and i was like okay (laughs) you know i was like like, that's a lot like okay and uh i was like you know be careful what you ask god for because he will deliver in you know um a hundred percent and so for the next year and a half, I, you know, I ended up sponsoring that guy. Um, he ended up going to the Venice house and about 10 or 11 other places, um, including Liberty house and for two weeks. And, right. uh, you know, it really opened my mind to the idea of working in recovery um, mm-hmm. because helping him, you know, in a wheelchair and then getting prosthetics and then, you know, just seeing all the different modalities, it, uh, I found it very attractive in a way that I'd never really been exposed to before. Cause I didn't, I didn't get sober in a treatment environment. Right. So, uh, I started, uh, you know, volunteering at a structured recovery home and I immediately took to it. I understood the value of all the, um, change in behavior stuff that they were doing. Cause I went through that right. <laughs> myself, but in a different way. And, mm-hmm. I understood how the 12 step philosophy, the spiritual principles behind the 12 steps were interwoven into the recovery home process in a way that I found exciting Mm -hmm. and very compelling. Um, And it, it, and it changed me. And then there was another guy around the same time within the first year or so of um, helping the guy I was sponsoring. There was another guy who ended up who I became friends with, who's, um, partner ended up hanging himself uh, as a result of both of their alcoholism and drug addiction and didn't succeed and ended up going to ICU and he never came out of it. He came and became a vegetable and they ended up um, pulling the plug like two and a half years later. But I, no. 
with the guy I was sponsoring, ended up going to the ICU, ended up going to the recovery place that he was at and with him and his partner. And like all of this together just like had this really deep impact on my mind and my my body and my spirit in a way that I was like, I need to I need to be giving back in as in a more profound way. Mm-hmm. And uh so in August of uh, 2015, uh, me and one other person started talking about opening a nonprofit recovery home um, that, but that had a similar, you know, long-term, you know, 12 plus months, abstinence, 12 step based behavior change sure. philosophy. Um, but as a nonprofit where it didn't matter whether you had money or not, that it just mattered that you, you know, had the willingness to, do whatever it would take to be able to get sober and learn how to stay sober long-term mm-hmm. because that was my own lived experience. You know, that, right. that was what, that was what got and helped me stay sober. And I really mm-hmm. believe in it, although I had very little experience. And so previously when I, with the guy that I was sponsoring, um, uh, one of the places he went to uh, Vanessa house, Kathy Watt, who is, is the executive director still there. Mm-hmm. She's like, well, if you want to work in recovery, you should go to UCLA and get involved in their addiction recovery, um, their KDAC program and, and, uh, and see if, cause working in recovery and being in recovery are not, are not the same thing. Two different and so things. it's, Two um, different things. it's really about, uh, hold on. Siri is somehow trying to, Okay. I think Siri went away. Uh, so I ended up doing the um, KDAC program at UCLA and got my certificate of drug and alcohol counseling. And I, all it did was reaffirm to me that although I loved recovery and I definitely wanted to work in recovery, mm-hmm. I definitely did not want to work in a medical model treatment environment. Right. Um, not because there's anything wrong with it, but A, it wasn't my own lived experience. And B, I... I wanted something that was more focused on long, on long-term recovery. Sure. Um, but it gave me a lot of education, you know, over 300 hours of classwork and, you know, 270 hours of interning at IOP, yes. um, which we still get referrals from now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I just knew that that wasn't going to be my path. That's and not what so, you want to do. Very similar no. to me. I, I went to school for all that stuff. I, I worked on the front lines for a while, but um, I had other ideas. Most definitely. Yeah. Most definitely. And I want to ask you this, like, did you get other ideas as far as like when you started to talk about wanting to open a nonprofit of structured sober living, was it because you were uh, volunteering at the prior place and you'd saw the day-to-day activities that went on in there? And, and this is where you realized like, I'd like to be able to open a place, but uh, nonprofit. Well, like I, I said, he went to like 10 or 11 different places in like right. 12 to 14 months. And so I would say all together, all the different places he ended up going to and then talking with several other long-term structured sober livings that were in LA, all those things together made me decide that I, that that was what I definitely wanted, that I definitely wanted to do that. And uh, mm-hmm. then going around like, well, well, how do I do that? <laughs> and, uh, and getting a lot of help. Do it or did you have to find a house to get? No, I mean, cause we were a nonprofit. I ended up forming the nonprofit 501c3. Um, mm-hmm. Then, recruiting a board um uh my co-founder and i uh co-founder was uh, bobby daly jr and um and uh and then we 
went on to recruit more board members, raised money, got a house, closed on it in April of 2016, mm -hmm. um, hired our first employee, <laughs> which is Greg, who I know you Greg, know. Greg is and, uh, and then we opened July 1st. And I okay. gave up my 25-year career on June 18th of that year. So I, I had given notice. They look. They were. They were. They understood that this was like a life mission for me. So they were very supportive and actually became a donor mm -hmm. um, of the house after I ended up. After we ended up opening, but it was uh, you know starting any nonprofit from scratch is difficult. But we had a lot of support um, that made it happen. Hmm. So question for you, when you were wanting to do all of this and you were um, getting funding, was it from, how are you putting your name out there to, as, a, as a nonprofit for people to actually contribute to be able to get it going and started? Well, initially it was just, you know, the sober support community and our board members and their connections. Um, mm -hmm. And then, you know, as we were open and as people came to the house and stayed um, and we did a website and all those things that you do with a startup business. Um, we were able to start to get the word out more and uh, do tours with people and, you know, events at board members houses. And it was very grassroots, I would say the way that we started out our fundraising. And then over the years, we were able to professionalize it more and, make it more of a development cycle type nonprofit in terms of our fundraising. And then when you said you closed on the house and all that, uh, being that it's a nonprofit, was it easier to obtain a house or uh, did you open it as a nonprofit business and, or did you have to go through the same, uh, same type of process that it would be for anybody else that wants to buy a house? Um, I mean, we, we initially, had some um, donors that bought the house and leased it to us with an option to buy. Mm. Um, and then they ended up donating the house to the nonprofit um, in the end of 2019. I so now that. the I nonprofit owns the house. Um, right. But initially that wasn't, I mean, we were brand new. We didn't you know, like, was it going to work? Was it not going to work? Yeah. Like doing a lease with an option to buy was this kind of a smarter play initially. Uh, but now, you know, that we're trying to get funding from larger foundations, sure. et cetera, owning the house is important to them, mm -hmm. uh, along with a lot of other criteria that are nonprofit driven. I love that. I, I put a, it's so cool that they actually like bought it and donated it. But sort of like, I don't know if you know the history of, of Friendly House when William Chatner, because, his, because of the way that his wife had passed away, he ended up having a house over in Cheviot Hills and was uh, that became one of their sober livings. And uh, they asked him, how much do you want for rent? And he said, $1 a year. <laughs> yep. I just love yeah. that. I love shit like that. It's so awesome. Cool. So you opened up in 2015, was it officially or 2016? We opened up in July of 2016. 2016. Okay. And so then, we just celebrated five years in operation in July. Congratulations. Five good, Thank good you. years. And, and as I was telling you before we even started the podcast, the, uh, as you and I both know, uh, I'm, a, I'm, I'm really big, just like you on, on structured sober livings. We don't have enough of them, not in Los Angeles, not in, not in Southern California, not nationally. And I, if it, it's my dream truly. And I say this because, you know, I don't, I don't do this podcast to really advertise for my sober livings, but it's a lot, a lot of people that like listen to the podcast probably even know, but I do have three sober livings and like, it's my dream if I was if I had a lot of money or even now you're giving me ideas 
to, to start some nonprofit stuff, I would create these homes up and down the coast, if not nationally, because we need more of them. I've, I've gone around the country. I've studied the Oxford houses. I've, I've checked out many different types of sober living environments. I know, what a, I know what a flop house is. I know what a place without structure is. I know what a weed-friendly place is, which to me, that's really not a sober living. It's just a place where people are smoking weed inside of a house, right, and paying money for a bed. So uh, it's not real recovery, not in my book. So, And then a lot of people have no idea when we talk about structured sober living what the basis is of, of structure. Like what, what exactly does the structure consist of? Uh, why is it a good place for people to send uh, their loved one that's perhaps gone to countless treatment centers or, or been homeless or doesn't have the means to go to a sober living? What, what's the beneficial uh, aspects of going to a structured sober living? Tell us about awakening and what the structure consists of, please. I mean, for me, I think the most important aspects of it is community and, and connection. And everything that we do is build off those two principles. I think because we're 12-step driven, abstinence-based, and have a lot of emphasis on changing behavior sober so that it sticks over time. Right. Uh, that what's great is that it's interesting. My, my therapist uh, said that um, the 12 steps were one of the best distillations of CBT that he had ever seen. Sure. And he's been practicing for 40 years, has about 39 years sober himself, 39 years sober himself. And, uh, right. and I agree because it's, it, if just talking was enough to like, for people to get sober, like real alcoholics and drug addicts who yes. have seen a lot of consequences, I think, you know, the 12 steps wouldn't exist, but it's about, you know, your thinking, you know, the, if you believe in the disease model, then the disease is centered in your mind. Mm -hmm. But the solution is action driven, you know, and that it's and, I, and look, I believe, which I think not being a clinical modality gives me the freedom to talk about it more that, you know, it is a uh, allergy of the body and obsession of the mind and, a, and I believe a soul sickness. And I believe all three of those things are equally important to address in recovery mm -hmm. because I do believe that we are, you know, spirits living in these bodies. And so to deny the spirit part <laughs> is denying probably the most important part of who we are. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think, for me, awakening recovery needed to blend the 12 step process with a behavior change process in a family environment that is peer mentoring driven uh, over a, a long period of time, over at least a 12 month period of time. Who are the peers? And, that, who's the peers that mentor? Are they graduates? Are they alumni? Are they people that have gone through other structured homes or just people that are in the recovery community? Is it all of it or it's some of those? It's all, it's all, it's literally all of those things um, for sure. And I think now that we've been around five years, I think our, our own alumni play uh, the, the biggest part, but that wasn't always true. And, and, and I think that, you know, anybody who has a lived experience that would be in, you know, unison and run parallel to what we do. Like we're happy to have them, you, you know, be, we have friends of the house um, that we, you know, that come to our, our peer mentoring house meetings and 
that sponsor guys as well as alumni and and other and people that have uh, graduated other you know structured houses um, that are that are similar because I it's if for me the lived experience in the twelve step process the lived experience of having been in a structured sober living yes um, are are equally important in our environment because it is a fa- you're you're really creating a family system in a long term mm-hmm. recovery home mm-hmm. and so all the family system issues that the guys in the house have, which are many, because I would say the predominant uh, population that we get are people with a lot of trauma um, and co-occurring mental health issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, They need to be primary substance use SUD or, you know, AUD to, to be in the house. If their primary is mental health, that's beyond our scope Mm -hmm. um, because we are a purely peer mentoring driven process. We don't have any clinical, um, there's no clinical involvement um, support in, well, in the house in, as we do refer people to clinical um, processes if they, if they need it. But, um, but yes, it's not a part of our process. So, and in some ways guys prefer that because like we were talking about before we started, Mm -hmm. a lot of the guys in the house are, they've been to 10, 15, 20 other treatment episodes, whether it was detox, residential, IOP, um, you know, MAT, combinations of those things that they, for whatever reasons or combination of reasons, couldn't stay sober. Right. So, okay, as far as when you say family system, you're not talking about their personal family life. You're talking about the family system that's created within this new environment, correct? Is that what you mean? Exactly. And so I believe it's a family disease, you know, and so we do have a peer mentoring house meeting that is for families, um, whatever that means for the resident, if it's their biological families or whatever they call family, um, and they support their recovery every two weeks, uh, we do that. And we do have a lot of alumni family members who um, who go to Al-Anon who have been through uh, the recovery home, our recovery home process to mentor the families uh, of, of the people that are in the house. Cause some of them do, don't even really understand what codependency is for instance, sure. or how their family trauma impacts their loved one's recovery. And sure. so to try to involve them whenever possible in the process all the way through, mm-hmm. we do try to do that. Cause then when they graduate and leave and live independently, they're going to be fully engaged in an unfettered way with that family of origin and do they have the tools to be able to cope with that sober, you know, have they in their 12 step process, if they have a co-occurring, you know, uh, mental health issue that they're starting to treat outside of the house, you know, what are those combination of things that will give them the tools to be able to have a romantic relationship, Mm -hmm. um, have a supportive compassionate and forgiving relationship with their, with their families, be able to work for a day's work for a day's pay that with integrity, all of those things are the skills. I think in a microcosm way they learn in the house. So, okay. I love it very well. You said uh, they have to have primary substance abuse. So mental health is, is also accepted as long as they are stabilized. So does that mean that you uh, allow medications as long as they're not narcotic, yes. Okay. Um, because because we are a twelve step based house and sure. an abstinence based sure. house, 
and it's very behavior change driven, it's not, our environment is not conducive to people who are on stimulant or sedative medication to the point where they can't participate in what we do on a daily basis. It wouldn't be fair to them and it wouldn't be fair to the house to have somebody who can't participate, you know, as an equal member of, of the house. And so as long as it's not narcotic, then we're, we're good with, you know, mood stabilizers, antidepressants, yep. uh, not, not an issue. So that, that brings me to the question of, <laughs> raise yourself, Dave. Suboxone maintenance. Obviously, you, you know, because you're a nonprofit and because you do, I think you'd mentioned depend on some kind of funding from SAMHSA and things like that. They, how, being a 12-step based house, do you allow your uh, residents, I don't know what you call them, I call them residents because they're not clients in our homes, uh, but do you allow your residents to uh, come in on sub-maintenance, sub suboxone, uh, or, or at least uh, perhaps if they're on it, be tapering down through a doctor's orders, or do, you, do they have to be completely abstinent 100% when they come in? Um, so we ask that all residents that come in be weaned off buprenorphine or methadone based MAT, um, or stimulant or benzo based MAT, um, and no THC, um, as well. And so for instance, we've had guys come in on Vivitrol shots, you know, which has no partial opiates in it and we're good with that. Um, but not the other stuff for the same reason, really, that I said before, it doesn't allow them to fully participate in the same way that everybody else is. And it, you know, that's what the family that lives there has agreed to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I don't have anything against MAT. I think, you know, harm reduction can be a very important part of, you know, the readiness to change, uh, scale, but sure. we are more with people who are interested in, you know, maintenance of their recovery than a harm reduction approach. And look, I think, you know, naloxone saves lives and mm-hmm. MAT can help people get ready for, you know, abstinence-based recovery. But our because our recovery home is abstinence and 12-step based, you know, uh, buprenorphine and methadone-based MAT isn't conducive to our environment. Agreed 100%. I'm, we're on the same page. I mean, that's just my outlook. I get a lot of criticism uh, for having that outlook. I just say, listen, this is my experience. This is what I believe in. I do believe in harm reduction. I don't believe in long-term uh, you know, maintenance. Uh, I think that people are being robbed of the opportunity to actually uh, seek recovery when they're still... I don't like to use the word Band-Aid, but sometimes I do. Uh, when, when they're still on, on long-term maintenance through through subs, through buprenorphine. So then um, if someone is absolutely in need of coming to a place like yours, like Awakening, how do you determine if they're a a fit, a good fit? Because obviously, is there a screening process? Do you, is it a, does there have to be a level of willingness on the, on the residents, uh, the few, possible future residents uh, want uh, to, to want to come in, or obviously it's not the parents that can decide and 
what, how do you guys decide if this person is good for our, our culture and our environment? Um, one other thing about the MET thing, I think the other thing that's problematic about it is that most of the guys that come into our house, and I, and I don't think it's unique to just our house, are polysubstance addicted. Yes. And so in a lot of times the poly substance addiction is stimulants and opiates. Sure. And there isn't yet, although they're working on it, an effective medically assisted treatment for methamphetamine, for instance. Yes. And so it it doesn't help to address that piece of it. Um, which I think is uh, is unfortunate. So I think we're a good alternative, you know, for people who want to be in abstinence, 12 step based recovery that, you know, if they're dually addicted, you know, with opiates and stimulants, I think the MAT approach currently is tough because there's a lot of ways to game the system. And like we, we had one guy in the house that, you know, had been trying to get off MAT, you know, buprenorphine based MAT for seven years. And he was like smoking crack and doing cocaine and meth in between the testing things. And he was gaming the system and it was just, it was just, another drug for him. Um, and it takes three weeks sometimes to detox off of buprenorphine based MAT, you know, with methadone, it can be longer, you know? And so, and, and people do become addicted to it, you know, uh, I think in the, the latest, uh, study I saw that, you know, buprenorphine was the most misused, um, of the, um, you know, prescription drugs, uh, and it, so I don't know how that can be a long-term recovery solution, I guess is my, is my point. And look, I think there's some people who've been using heroin for like, you know, 20, 30 years or in their fifties and their, sure. you know, and their pleasure receptors in their brain might be long-term or mm. permanently damaged in a way where sure. they're going to need some sort of medication assistance to be able to function in life mm -hmm. in recovery. But that's like 1%, you right. know, uh, uh, you know, and it's certainly not anywhere almost ever relevant in the 18 to 32 year old range, which is most of the people that come into our house. And so I, I just wanted to sort of extend my thought about this um, in terms of screening. Yeah. You know, yes. we did. You know, I think the, the primary criteria is that we think they're a good fit and that they think they're a good fit. You know, we don't hide the fact that, you know, it's a year plus long 12 step absence based process we don't hide the fact that you're not going to have a cell phone or be working until you finish a fourth and fifth step, which usually is at least four to six months into the, being in the house. So ah, we, we say, we say that's that part, that's part of the rules too, right? Yes. And so we say that I applaud you, sir. On the first call, like, like <laughs> the first screening call, like we, so we weed out like 80 to 90% of the people who really just aren't interested in that. Mm -hmm. Um, in that first phone call, just for saying the things that I just said. And so it's, uh, because look, we're not, again, it, not that there's anything wrong with the internet and not that there's anything wrong with working in early recovery, it's but for our environment and with what we do, which mm -hmm. is very rigorous, right. um, it, it doesn't work, honestly. And right. we don't want to really, you know, turn somebody loose onto the work environment or to having a smartphone with unlimited access to social media and, you know, chat rooms, et cetera, et cetera, until they have some understanding of who they are. And until sure. they finish a fourth and fifth step and understand the causes and conditions behind their addiction and, and alcoholism, 
they don't really know that. And so they're much more vulnerable to triggers and relapse situations in, you know, before they do a fourth and fifth step. Uh, so we, it's, it's our way. We think it's actually the easier, softer way to do that. Um, but some people don't. And if they don't, that's cool. But then they're not a good fit for our house. I love it. That, and this is why when, when Leah actually reached out to me uh, to, to uh, talk about having you come on this podcast, I told her, I'm a fan of Awakening. You guys don't know. But I've been studying you guys from a distance. And, and I know Greg. And Greg's a very good man. He's the, he's the uh, program director there. No? He's uh, our director of operations. And he's been director there since. He was, our first, he was our first employee. And he was right. there uh, three months before we opened the house, um, helping us get ready to open the house. And he's been instrumental in our success. You guys do good work, and I, I just want you to know, like, I've actually probably sent some people your way, that especially people that didn't have the means, knowing that you guys are nonprofit, but can still provide the uh, uh, very structured type of environment that other people charge three, four, five thousand dollars a bed for in the greater Los Angeles area. I mean, that's usually when you want structure in that type of setting in LA, you're going to have to pay for it, and so this is this is great. I mean, I. I, I have a, an immense amount of respect for what you're doing. We need Thank more you. of. We really need more of this. And and um, and with all things considered, between the HOA trying to you know run you guys out and you guys fighting that case and winning the case and them paying your legal fees, I fucking love that. Like that's awesome because because for if you don't know, I'm going to just bring this up right now. Down in Orange County, there are certain cities that have created ordinances within their cities, which are totally going against the federal, you know, Fair Housing Act. And, and they're winning. There's actually one city that won and was able to push out any type of, and, you know, it got really saturated down there because of sober, certain treatment centers that had sober livings attached to them and whatnot. But now all the other cities are following suit because that one particular city won. And, and it's like, what the hell are you going to do when you got all these people that have gone to countless treatment centers or that are coming from across America to treatment out in California and they're going to get discharged and they get the taste of California life and they want to be near the beach rather than in fucking Kentucky or some shit. And now, now they're not going to have homes to go to. It's like I'm actually meeting with some people tomorrow who were, we're going up against them and we're going to do whatever we can to, in order to, um, <clears throat> Be able to function as, as a place that's a safe environment, you know, and, and if you do whatever it takes, right? And I, I love that that you uh, have this going on. I told you earlier I want to come and check out Awakening. I've been telling Greg for a few years now I want to come and tour, and I, I really should make the time because it's in my neighborhood in L.A. It's like because <laughs> Beverly Wood. I didn't even know that. I thought you were, like, up in the hills or something like that. But it's all good. I mean, still. So, Wow. Yeah, I mean, look, I, just to clarify that the HOA wasn't trying to run us out, but they were trying to make things uh, hard, make things difficult, make part of their CCNR is an illegal screening process. Okay. Um, and so we mediated with them to find something because, uh, look, NIMBY's not in my backyard issues, you know, are not totally foundless you know there are there are a lot of bad actors out there sure. that make it hard for the good actors like us to right. um you know to to exist and it so we weren't trying to 
do anything other than create an even playing field within our HOA, which has like 1300 homes in it. Um, uh, So that no one was being discriminated against. I think that was really our biggest issue with that. But yes, I think Orange County, unfortunately, they have, you know, a lot of stuff that is not, uh, you know, good. And, and I, I, I wish that that wasn't the case, but I think, you know, I'd love to be a part of whatever it is you're doing because, you know, however we can advocate to create a fair, safe space for people who want paramentoring social model recovery mm-hmm. um, in a residential environment, because look, it, could we do what we do in a commercial environment? Sure. Mm-hmm. But if we're trying to repair family systems, you know, it wouldn't and, work and in a foster long-term recovery, right. the best place to do that is in a residential environment so that mm-hmm. you, you are seeing it that way. Sure. The, the only place I've actually seen it work commercially is in a commercial environment was I went up to see the John Volcom Academy up in uh, Washington state and they actually housed their residents inside of a, building that they built out in like kind of dorm style and then the building next door was sort of the place where they did not their clinical work but like a lot of their a lot of the work that they did and that that was impressive i was very impressed but now they have a lot of different homes too like in arizona and they just opened up recently down in uh santa cruz too and look our our neighbors love us like we clean the street every day we help people move stuff around their houses if they need to we we have rules uh for our residents to, uh, as they walk through the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So they're not smoking or wearing right. inappropriate clothing or making loud noises. And cause we don't want to create a bigger footprint than any other residential house in the HOA. Sure. And we and do that, a lot makes, of hard work to ensure that. And I believe that, that, that type of, it doesn't just have to come from the house manager teaching them. This is the way we, we conduct ourselves. That comes from the structure within the house that they're learning to redevelop and change who they are, they don't need to be hip slick and cool and flicking cigarettes and spitting in the street and being exactly what NIMBY would, would zero in on. Uh, you know, I, I think that uh, we, we become actually, truly, if you have the structures uh, that, that's within certain houses, we become one of the safest houses on the block. It's not about, oh, my God, those drug addicts. Are, no, those, those, those are the guys that are not doing drugs as opposed to down the street. Somebody could be doing fentanyl right in your very own home. Right. So it's yeah, not- I mean, look, the community piece is huge, you know, in our process. And I think part of building community is being a part of the community that the house is in, you know, and, you know, all our guys that graduate, they commit to moving out with another graduating resident for at least another year, you know, because once they go into independent living, which they've saved up money from working um, to do uh, independently, you know, that is that is a huge part of what we do. And the the guys that graduate are also sponsor the guys in their house and their 12-step issues. They lead peer mentoring house meetings um, in the house. And they're, they're as our alumni are as much a part of our community as our as our residents. And in a lot of ways, as you know, in years two to five, at least, if not beyond, sure. Living is harder in certain ways than than when you have the structure of the house to support you being able to do it on your own and live a service-based sober life is not an easy thing to do so we especially in the last few years since we've had more alumni now you know going into our sixth year now uh you know that's a huge part of what we do and we do a monthly now uh 
alumni check-in meeting where our alumni um, come to the house and I help lead that. And it's, you know, it's really about how are you taking all the other slices of the pie in your life and balancing it with your recovery now that you're living independently, have a girlfriend, mm-hmm. have had a, a kid, are getting married, have a job, have challenging family issues, all those things, you know, those are hard things to deal with in recovery, certainly sure. in your in the earlier years. But and so to me, that's just as important as what we do in the first year with our residents. I love it. This has been excellent. You know, uh, you're speaking my language. I, I, I actually, my wheels are spinning in my head. I want to be able to collaborate <laughs> with you. I think that you and I need to meet more and talk more about, you know, future projects. I want to introduce you to Earl. Earl would love Awakening. If he knows more about this, he needs to know about Awakening. I've heard Earl. He's a great speaker, and I respect a lot with the work he does. Sure. Um, so I appreciate you. And, you know, just being on, on, on the podcast today, you're a good man. You're doing very good work. I commend you. Uh, I'm a fan of Awakening. I'm going to set something up with you and uh, Greg and come on down and perhaps we can go have lunch and, and uh, you know, kind of just throw some ideas around. And I want to inv- involve you in the thing that I'm going to be going to tomorrow, too. So I'll tell you more about that. Uh, That's great. Year. Yeah. And one more thing. I just want to let you know, we are planning on opening a women's house in the first half of next year. And. Um, we really think as much as what we do is needed for men, it is even more needed for women. And so we are uh, deep in the process of doing that. And we anticipate sure. opening it in the first half of 2022 for women. That's why I opened a, a house that was co-ed at first. I really wasn't a fan of the idea of co-ed, but uh, I had a female that was supposed to, it was a female identifying as a male that was supposed to move in and I could not have, it was going to be just a men's house. I couldn't have that because she, he still had female parts. And how are you going to test, you know, UA? So uh, it turns out that person barely stayed with us. But in that time, I opened a, a female division on one side and it worked. It worked. I mean, everybody's got sponsors. They're all working steps. There's a lot of peer mentoring. I mean, it, it, it works. So we need more, uh, more homes that will accommodate females, too, because Lord knows a lot of them are suffering out there and it's hard to get into certain places. So. Um, you're doing great work. I, 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 I respect you so much. And thank you thank for you. being on today. <laughs> and, I will, and off the air, you and I will be in communication. All right? That's great. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate Thanks the opportunity. To the corner. Talk to you All soon. Right. Take care. Right. Bye-bye. Bye.